Welcome to the show, Course Correction. Setting your life's direction and your GPS for success. Leadership, management, marketing, and strategy that works. And now, here's your host, Dr. Jeff Darville. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Darville, and with me today is John Hardy. John is an author and consultant, advisor, and strategist. His career included managing his real estate development company, which specialized in building carriage homes in Canada, as well as a consumer foods company. His accounting background helped him develop flow or zero-based auditing, which helped turn around companies. As an auditor with Deloitte & Touche, he audited foreign-owned subsidiaries in Hungary and worked out of London. Today, John and I are going to discuss capitalism and Christianity, the business, ethics, and morality that applies to every organization and leadership, as well as sin and evil. I hope you enjoy it. Kind of talking about how the game, how we label things. For instance, in China, when a Westerner, particularly from North America, goes to the East, they uh, will label the payment as corruption. In other words, let's say, you know, paying uh, these, <laughs> what do you call it, various extraneous payments, which are required to make the transaction go, uh, will be labeled as corruption. At the same time, if you give, for instance, in this city, uh, hockey tickets to uh, people to, you know, watch the Maple Leafs and this and that, and, you know, front row seats, etc., eh, it's just part of doing business. And and the and and the the whole thing is sort of based on this premise that there are these rules, and these rules are as if they were natural rules, but they're not. They're they're actually an arbitrary set of rules which has been created by a certain group of individuals, and they will always distinguish between insiders and outsiders, and they will always have two levels of the rules. And that the interesting thing is, whereas if you happen to be in Hungary or Russia or Africa or China, I mean, a 10-year-old on the street would know that, that that's just the way it goes. There are a different set of rules that the laws apply differently and not arbitrarily. It's actually built into the system, right? And the interesting thing is, let's say in Canada or the States, where, it's, where that is the case, but when this is, takes place, then all over the news, they're saying, yeah, but this is not democracy. This is not America. This is not Canadian. This is a threat to the system. And yet, as if the system didn't always run like that. Right. And it's almost as if this is like some island of insanity in the world where people have this false notion of how the system works. And they're the ones caught in it because nobody else buys into it. Right. And so uh, I, I think, you know, I really like your comments there because of the, the two-tiered system and the in-group and out-group differences and the um, kind of the implicit agreement that we're not supposed to break these rules, but some people can because they're part of that uh, elite 
group of people who get, get, they get by either because they're part of the system, therefore they won't be prosecuted. Their selection, selective prosecution of these laws, um, whether it's, you know, um, yeah, corruption, yep. bribery, and other cases. Occasionally, some of them get caught in the net, but it's it's usually a reaction to inter-party fighting or in-group fighting, or the fact that one person didn't deliver on their promise, like in in a mob, group, mafia to, to that group, in, right? Yeah, you didn't you, to like, the inner group. Yeah, you're supposed to. Here. Then we'll then we'll pick you up and we'll wrap you up and and package you up and make an example of you to other people, which is the same way we would do in the in the Middle Ages. You know, they, their heads would be on a pike in front of the the gates of the city, saying, "Don't do this." So anyone that ends up in jail, whether it's Jeffrey Epstein or somebody else, I mean, you know, obviously violated enough laws and rules at some point that they got kicked out of the club and uh, they needed to be made an example of. I think that the, um, you know, the in-group out-group differences, as you mentioned, in Africa, China, um, Eastern Europe, and then there's the the class system of um, England and France and the caste system in India, and then our uh, new moneyed system in uh, America and what, what the, the programs of Mexico and the um, Latin America and South America, as well as Canada has its own um, kind of system there. And the, in the UAE, where I lived for two years, there's clear distinction. There's Emirati law and law for residents, non-Emirati. So the, mm-hmm. the country is made up of 9 million people. 1 million of those are local Emirati citizens. No one else can ever be a citizen. You're born into citizenship and you'll only be a citizen if you were born in the right families of the tribes that occupied that area. And within those tribes, everyone gets a little bit of oil money and revenues from the businesses that do uh, business in the UAE. So Sheikh Zayed, who created the UAE in 1971, did a great job of transferring oil money into financial instruments, uh, banks and um, healthcare, and then education and tech businesses and logistics, really. It's mainly a logistics hub as well, doing business with China and Africa and transferring natural resources. Took a, a, a desert nation that had no nothing to speak of, of assets or value and turned it into an international hospitality. Um, there was money laundering that came through that they've tried to weed out. But again, tried is the operative word there. There's still things that go on. Um, there's stories of, uh, you know, I think um, uh, Mugabe's wife uh, transferred millions of dollars and went to UAE to buy um, beautiful, you know, trinkets and, and jewelry and Bugatti, Bu, um, you know, they buy cars and whatever they want to buy. And, um, that's just the way things are. But the difference in systems there, the difference in laws is always interesting. And I think that the, the level where you were describing payments, in order to do business in Dubai, you need to know somebody because they trust people in relationship. So someone else has to vouch for you. And that person's going to get a percentage, a commission, what we would call a finder's fee in the United States in some level. And that's accepted over there. But in, and you and some people here would would. Um, blush or whatever they would they would reject that as a bribe and yet that's the way business is done there and in the united states we have our own versions of that whether it's a rolex watch a vacation uh tickets to a hockey game or um admission into a college that is selective but i can get your kids in or we can help you with a um, sat scores that are going to get you in or a tutor you know we'll make things happen that will give you the advantage uh, for the rest of your life, and we can get you into a club, and we can give you uh, breaks on real estate, which is also related to the kind of as we um, started our conversation on the different, the two tiered systems, and what we consider bribes and not bri- and um, legitimate um, gifts or 
the limits on gifts. Some businesses have ethic codes of ethics that have limits on how much money you can give. You can give, you know, $500, but if it's over $500, then you have to, then, then, then we should talk about it. And yet, um, you know, other things made it, make it under the threshold secretly. secretly That's right. This, in accounting, I'm a CA background. I was this materiality threshold, which is totally <laughs> arbitrary. <laughs> it is. Really? Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, you know, like they just pulled the number and declare it. And then, that's is it, it inflation adjusted? You know, <laughs> does it matter? <laughs> yeah. You but know, but all this relates back to the, the value of money. And as we were talking yes. about earlier, the economic gain from country to country, whether it's China and the United States, but also the currency manipulation that has taken place has actually reduced the value of uh, assets in countries like the US and China and in Canada, because real, real assets, property, real estate has been purchased with yuan, which is a currency that is intentionally devalued and used by the communist party to propagate its control over physical assets in other countries as a way of creating interlocking dependencies between the west and china and and and, and it's and as you're describing this you know one's head starts to spin because you start to think well this is so deeply ingrained that if you ever tried to pull your way out of it i mean you literally have to pull the plug on the entire world economy and start from scratch because there would be no way to salvage anything that was, you know, not corrupted by this mindset, so to speak, a favoritism, right? And I was thinking to myself, you know, I wonder if this traces all the way back. And it's interesting because you're, you're at a you're La Roche, a Catholic university. I am. Correct? Yes. Yeah. And I was thinking that, you know, with respect to, you know, Christianity, it, I've always been stunned by this because to me, there's absolutely unreconcilable the uh, basic free market, so forget even capitalism, the free market system is not even pr particularly reconcilable, let alone when you add insult to injury and you, you, know, you, you, you create capitalism. In the sense that you've, let's say, if, let's say you produce a table and then you get something for that table, but the person who gives you something, it's now sort of beads for pelts. If he's giving you money, you put your blood into and your, your, your personality and everything that you are and that it took you to become that uh, you know, cabinet maker to create that table. And then the moment it is valued in terms of money, you're, it is devalued no matter what number you place on it because it's like it's, it, it's the spiritual element that was placed in it with the personal, the individual's unique talents, flair, experience, which always were invested in that, can never be compensated for by an amount of money. Yeah, I mean, um, it's a, I think you're, you're, Absolutely right. George Will, who's a political commentator in the United States, once stated in an article, and, and I've never forgotten this, and I'm not sure if it's made it out there um, as well as it. I, think, I believe it should have, but he goes, um, money is congealed time. Money is congealed time. We trade our time for money. I work mm -hmm. at a business, whether I'm salaried or I'm um, compensated per hour as a consultant, or let's say you're a business owner and you, you invest 
some amount of time, knowledge, and resources. Now, the, the more, so I think that there's, I think most people in the game relate as the craftsman building a table that you described. Mm -hmm. Some people begin to transcend the game because their income is decoupled from the time that they spend on any particular task. It's like well, Wall Street and the model never, never sleeps. Exactly right. I'm making yeah. money while I'm sleeping. I'm making money while I'm eating, eating because my money is making money for me. And at that point, if you look at like Robert Kiyosaki, who's a uh, author who wrote Cashflow oh, yeah. Quadrant, Quadrant, he's a bit of a, I don't know. I mean, this, this kind of gets into some of our, our talk on who's a charlatan and who's not. We talked about Jordan Peterson before and kind of some yeah. of his con man-esque ways of talking now again i think it's funny because he comes across as is a bit of a canadian gentleman at times and or uh intellectual and he bumbles right. bumbles through his ideas and it's 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 a bit awkward to the trained mind who's used to sniffing the con man who's trying to sell you a, a business idea i always joke that you know when someone's telling you how to become rich and the way they do it is by my book the irony is the method to becoming rich isn't in the book. It's in selling books. <laughs> it's getting someone to buy your book. Getting someone to buy the exactly. idea. Right. You know, you, you did whatever you did to make money and it wasn't in the book. You write a book that's that's some some you know crappy version of it and you're selling books. And that's how you're really making money now is you've traded your intellectual property and your persona as a con man, as a charlatan, as a snake oil salesman for those things. So there's levels of trading time for money that the craftsman does with a table and that most people do when it comes to hourly work. You get paid a salary or an hourly rate to, for doing work and you're essentially trading your time for that money. And if you make enough money, you get to buy back some of your time potentially. But again, depending on how ingrained and entrenched and locked into the work you that's are, what, you can't even do that. That's what it's become. Like I'm just thinking of, uh, is it Mill who was talking about the, you know, the right to buy a man's power? which was the foundation of basically the capitalist system is the idea that they legitimized the, uh, the, 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 the right to buy another man's power. And I was thinking that it's just like, for instance, I remember uh, I used to build custom houses. Uh, well, I, I didn't really start off as custom houses. They were houses. And then they became customized when certain kinds of oh, buyers bought them because these were high-end houses. So these were either, you know, sports figures in our case in Canada, they tend to be hockey players or they were um, hedge fund owners. And another one was a developer, son of a developer. And I was thinking that the problem for me was that when I actually, what made me get up in the morning was I had a concept of a house, a certain artistic expression that I wish to create. As I saw it being realized, that was what gave me the high. And then when I ended up selling it, in, in several cases, they were sold very profitably to an individual who, you know, was somewhere between a Philistine and, and a Cro-Magdon, was now going to have this. And, you know, all the work that all these people put into it and they were going to be, quote unquote, enjoying it. But I wouldn't even call it enjoying it. They were going to be enjoying the fact that they can have such a thing rather than the thing itself. And the status of its the status, the location, prestige, right? Sure, yeah. 
And I was thinking that it just robbed any joy out of it. And then I started to think, my reaction to that was to say, well, the hell with this. I mean, might as well be a financial trader because then it's really absolutely no value, no value whatsoever on both sides of the transaction. It's catch as catch can. No value added whatsoever, even though some people have the temerity to pretend that there's value added in that, but there's right. none. Right. Yeah. We say liquidity. Total zero sum game. <laughs> liquidity in right? the market. No. Yeah. Yeah. Now, to, so as you say there, the, the, maybe the de-evolution of the efforts to build a home, which has real value in the real world and the, the artistic expression, which I think sometimes of, of, you know, I had a graphic designer once tell me, you know, Michelangelo was a contract graphic designer at the time. He was paid by the Medici and whomever, yes. you know, so. I mean, we'd, we'd call them that, but. Yeah, but he wasn't. But, yeah, but that's who now we look down on people that are uh, artists, paid artists for companies when the Renaissance artists had patrons, whether um, I remember reading about a woman, too, and, and many of the um, church uh, leaders, popes and whatnot, who paid for the, this art. So art has been paid for in the past, will continue to be paid for uh, in the future, um, whether it's an architectural masterpiece or a uh, uh, generic uh, McMansion home or a, a steel building that's, you know, just used to store things. We, we, we have the base level of the thing. We have the highest expression and we have all the things in between. Um, but I think that your, your original statement to me was I'm working at a Catholic university. I'm teaching business there. Supposedly there must be some, um, enlightened spiritual version of business that is being taught at a Christian school or well, how within can a Christian culture. Th this is the, this is, this is the, one of the major issues in, in the United States. I think the source and seed of a lot of our tension throughout American history and, and the West, but yeah. even more pronounced more recently is that gap between the top 1% and the one tenth of 1% and the one hundredth of 1% and so on. The, the gap between the rich and the poor has only widened. And I, I do believe that there was potentially, you know, okay. So there was an original social compact, both within our government and within our society that I could trust you as a person. You were a member of a, a, a city, a township. A lot of our cities in the United States are built by men and women settlers and, and frontiersmen and, the, and they and they built cities in um, strategic locations between rivers and and highways and byways and the the passes between mountains and the plains and different spots and and there's family names that are associated with some of these cities because they were the ones that were the most trusted within that group they they established some level of trust with their um, friends and family members and maybe they were cutthroat at times and they got a bad reputation. Some of them were kicked out. Others were lionized and, and saint canonized as saints in those cities um, because they, they played those local games. But there was an, an implicit agreement that I could trust you. My word was my bond. I will be ostracized and I will be legally prosecuted if I'm violating those trusts, right? There are laws that did apply in some of those cities and people did get put in jail. They did get kicked out of those cities. They did become outlaws and maybe they became con men in the next city down the, the train line or the, the, the um, Oregon trail out West. And they go to California as gold diggers, but there was, there was some version of ca um, capitalism that was moral. It existed at some point in certain pockets in a way that, that it hasn't around the world. But let's, let, let's look at, let's look at, 
exactly those examples. Like, what makes it moral is that I don't think it's the laws. It's the fact of our connection to those around us, right? So that, you know, imagine the most mammalian kind of thinking is, you know, good to friends, bad to enemies, you know, which is that first uh, definition of justice in the uh, Plato's The Republic. And still, though, there's some kind of morality because you're not just doing as you wish, you're still respecting the other, even though it's a restricted subset of others. Um, that there's something to do, I think, with the connection to, to community that is the countervailing influence that capitalism needed. And that once that's removed from capitalism, basically all bets are off. Right. Yes. You're, you're essentially in the Leviathan. Right. Exactly the, the Leviathan that Hobbes predicted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was reading about Hobbes Leviathan and um or anticipated rather but right yeah his so i've always taken his leviathan to be a, a state bureaucracy in some ways but it was more attached to the crown and the monarchy i believe no the leviathan was the state of all against all it was the leviathan was so i mean you're talking about the, the peace itself the whole Leviathan in terms of his argument. I'm talking about specifically when he refers to the word Leviathan, it is a chaotic, all against all environment, right? And so it's the state of nature of man in the absence of some form of government, essentially, is yeah. what it is. And that's yeah. his argument. Yeah, that, that okay. loose anarchy is, is, is um, impossible. Unfortunately, I mean, it's it's an odd thing. I think that you know this, the anarchists kind of harken back to or aspire to some version of of utopia where um, the all against all is somehow purified by an absence of government, and it's like it wouldn't be. It would be chaos. It would be marauding bands of roving raiders killing and stealing from one another the law of the jungle is red and tooth and claw you know so you're so whatever version of of the world you think that would produce the strong will eat the weak or more likely governments um become more belligerent as their grasp of power becomes more tenuous well yeah, I mean, I guess the only way that kind of system can form a stasis is like Pax Mongolia or Pax Romana, where you become so big that you dominate completely. And in dominating completely, you actually create a level of order, which is, you know, which is enjoyed by those um, within the realm, ultimately, not initially, but over time. Because, you know, the, the terror subsides because it's no longer necessary. And essentially, it's, it, the, it's the threat of terror rather than terror itself, which then rules in those, um, you know, the, and they probably they end up having golden ages in both cases. Um, yeah. And then eventually the game, corruption, 
you know, it's they start to basically atomize at the top and you have inner intrigues. And so the circle cannot hold at the top and then it starts to basically, you know, come apart because of that negative impulse, ultimately pulling it apart, which is this malevolent um, desire to have more than your neighbor. Right. Yeah. And, and again, I think Christianity does explain that through its um, view on sin which I think is, is misunderstood and often misrepresented by a lot of people. It's a failure to understand the human heart um, and the psychology of human beings to say that um, capitalism came out of the Western tradition of Europe in many cases and spread. And there was originally a morality a code about it. And it was tied to the community that you mentioned. Um, but there was also um, some legal protections. Um, an economist, Hernando de Soto from uh, Peru, wrote a book that's an amazing book called The Mystery of Capital. And he kind of details that, um, you know, the right to uh, freedom of your own person from slavery is, is the, the kind of the first essential economic right. And then the right to property follows on that. And, um, you know, I think the class systems and feudalism and others and the real estate uh, markets that we've described even early on, this idea of property being bought up and even businesses being bought up by a certain oligarchic group of people um, thwarts the right to property. But again, in the United States and, and other countries, you can at least own some piece of real estate that encourages a sense of ownership to some degree. But, but, in, but here we're getting back, exactly. Here we're getting back. Let's say going back to the Ten Commandments, I think it's the Fourth Commandment, the property. Thou shalt not covet another person's property. Yeah, covet the so tenth and thou shalt not yeah, steal is the fifth. And the first yeah, four are more related to religion, which is, which again, that religious um, morality is meant to kind of uh, create a worldview, a philosophy, a theology, a way of thinking and acting that people absorb. And that does influence the way they act. Their beliefs will. Well, the, let's see. I was just listening to an audio file of, of um, Rudolf Steiner's description of the Ten Commandments, what they really were, and what they represented. And one of the, what he was saying was that the idea was that the the Jewish race had a heightened awareness, uh, a level of awareness that was greater than the others, but the cost of it was that it required a higher, it required a morality. There was no morality that preceded that because the th thing is the other ones were essentially in bondage to a lower level of consciousness. And so the moment this consciousness introduced sort of, you know, choice, the, you know, from the eating from the food of good, the, the tree of good and evil, that you have choice. Now there is the possibility of sin. Of course, it's created. So it's the coming into awareness. The immediate th thing with that then is that at all times, we have to be in service to the spirit that guides us. The moment we deviate from that in our thoughts or in our actions, then we are in error. So the first thing is that we have to honor that spirit. And then that applies to uh, really all the sins. You know, it applies to lust, you know, in terms of sex, you know, in terms of adultery. It applies to, uh, you know, gluttony, greed, all those other things are all really sub-applications of pride in a sense. And that, that, and that isn't it true that the original sin then really is pride, and pride then comes into being the moment we actually are awake and we have choice. We have the potential to sin. Because without pride, we wouldn't even have the potential to sin. Yes. Yeah, I would, I would generally agree. I think that, um, I think it's, 
something I've considered there is, is the idea that sometimes I, I, I want to, you know, you hear the seven deadly sins. And as you mentioned, lust, yeah. gluttony, yeah. envy, and pride is in the list. And yet pride seems to be the captain of that crew. It's the, the first it, it, among it's, it's, equals often. It's in the your fountainhead. List. Yes. It, it ends up being the fountainhead. And it really is. And, you know, even in the Bible, the story of uh, Lucifer, the, the fallen angel that aspired to be like God and, and you know, left and heaven. Pure, with a, pride. Angel, pure pride. His sin was only pride. If, if, if anything, certainly yes. it's pride. And, uh, most and that and that tends to follow on in the temptations to all human beings uh, to be um, like God, to be gods unto ourselves, to be uh, the captains of the the universe or the rulers of our own domain or whatever you want to say. The the power that comes, the lust for power that's that is sourced in pride, that springs from the fountainhead of pride, tends to corrupt a lot of our relationships. And and so the ultimate, let's say, an example of that, a perfect example of pure pride which would be sort of like the same as pornography in a way is speculation. So spe speculation would be the assets as pornography is to sex. Sure. That's a, is that it's taking yeah. it away from its original purpose altogether and turning it into something else and debasing it ultimately. So in a way, the ultimate debasement of property is speculation, as I think about it. Now, I come from a family of speculators, so this is hard to... <laughs> I mean, we were in land development. That's how my family yeah. made its money. And I was just thinking, like, from A to Z, I mean, this is we're on the wrong side of the Bible, that's for sure. Yeah, well, so we have to appreciate your openness. And I think that, John, one of the things I appreciate <laughs> you about you is your willingness to, to go there intellectually, yeah. even if it forces us to question some of our own assumptions about the way things work or how they have worked. And I think that, um, you know, one of the oddities in my estimation of somebody that can, kind of, I think we mentioned this last time, this bifurcation and compartmentalization of certain executives and others who, who refuse to be self-reflective of their own life and the things yes. about themselves that they would prefer to correct or change. Instead, they, become more committed and double down. It's, it's a cognitive dissonance that is only resolved by reinforcing the thing that, like I always describe this to my students, cognitive dissonance, the best example is smoking. When someone knows that this cigarette is going to give them cancer, they persist at times in whatever belief system is necessary to allow them to continue smoking while having the same knowledge that this thing will kill them because they can't give up the habit. And that cognitive, that balance of cognitive dissonance, um, the, uh, the man who kind of coined the term or used it in leadership literature, I believe his name was Turner, if I'm, mm -hmm. if I'm correct. But anyway, that idea that you have to double down and strengthen your commitment to your original assumptions in face of a challenge to your belief system. So you become more committed to being a speculator. You become more committed to being a CEO when your life starts to crumble, when your marriage is failing or you know, your children don't like you and you don't have any relationship with them, you decide, well, I can get a new family or I can build a bigger business because those are the only things that are going to matter to me now. Well, the, the ultimate example of what you're just describing is like the Bernie Madoff effect kiting. Sure. Because, you know, first you steal a little, then you a little bit more, a little bit more until, I mean, or there, there's that, uh, that particular one. I remember a Seinfeld episode with Elaine and there was uh, the, 
wedding cake, I think, of JFK. or No, it wasn't JFK, but some famous wedding cake. And then she just took a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more. <laughs> Fortune was on video. She didn't realize it. And then <laughs> she consumed the entire cake because it's like once you start going at it, it's just, just there's, it, you finally say, well, if you've eaten 90% of the cake, you're not going to leave 10% there. I mean, at this right. point, the heck with it. It's almost right. like if you're going to hell, you don't want to go there for 90%. You want to go there for 100%. Sure. And I can, I can respect the, the level of commitment there at some point. I mean, I guess I believe, you know, if you, if you, um, yeah, if you're in for a pinch, you're in for a pound and if you're going to ski, you know, take, take the, take the hill. Um, the, the quickest way down is straight and fast, but um, yeah, the, uh, the the ethical dilemma there is also related to in ideas of sinfulness in terms of sin isn't just one occurrence because there's again in the christian tradition there's such a thing as confession and repentance mm -hmm. and you can turn away from that and, and you could recover from a single sin um it's the habit of sin when it becomes a part of you and then you own it and and you refuse to uh accept your own personal responsibility and accountability to anyone uh, that's the problem with becoming too sinful, essentially. Well, and it's like, yeah. I've told my students, you know, when you get busted for speeding, no one says this was the first time officer I've ever sped in my entire life. And you happen to catch me. And I, you know, I can't believe I'm getting a ticket for this because everyone knows you've been doing it. And the same with stealing money from your embezzling from your organization. It starts small, as you say, like Elaine with a little piece of cake and it gets bigger. This is the way life works. It's habits. You know, I'm just, I mean, now I'm going to drop a bombshell and it's really <laughs> obviously for next time because this is, and I was just thinking what we've just backed into, which is a great place because everybody, it's sort of the elephant in the room, but nobody touches it or hasn't for the longest time is the concept of evil itself. Right. You know? Not badness, not malevolence, not all the euphemisms right. that we use for it. In other words, going right at it. Now I was just thinking now to this concept of evil. I, there's a lot there. And I think if we're some of the few people that are actually willing to confront it and talk about it, well, there's got to be, we can mine that for a long time. There's got to oh, be. Well, and, and, and the reason I'm thinking about that, I was thinking is that uh, what I want to explore within that is this whole progression, for instance, of, you know, the thought comes in, is that within us or without us? But at a certain point, we participate in the thought. So even if, let's say, say there's a devil outside, he introduces a thought. Now, at a certain point, we are engaging with the thought or not. There's some choice there. Right. But then there's a certain progression once we, we're, you know, like the ultimate one is like the serial killer who becomes obsessed, where it, there isn't even a choice anymore. It is completely one stream flow. Thought enters is acted upon. There is no resistance. Sure. And so... Examining that continuum, it seems that there's somewhere along there, if we if one does not engage with the idea of evil, then it just leaves you open to ultimately becoming totally narcissistic and totally blind to one's own participation. Right. right. And so you know, like yeah, the humility yeah. as a as a counter to pride is absolutely necessary. Exactly, because, yeah, the, 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 what the greatest trick that the devil ever played was making us believe he doesn't exist. I mean, that one, we, we could actually entitle the next one that if you wanted. But, there we um, go. Okay, so let's reconvene tomorrow at 3 o'clock. Sounds good, John. Okay, excellent. Thanks a great. lot, Jeff. This yep. has been great. Excellent. Take care, John. Appreciate it. Okay, bye.